European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 42, Issue 48, Focus Issue, Heart Failure, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea, read to you by Morgan Bryan. Sodium glucose co-transporter inhibitors, ion therapy, checkpoint inhibitors, new clinical and translational pieces of the heart failure puzzle. This focus issue on heart failure and cardiomyopathies contains a viewpoint article entitled Sodium Glucose Co-Transporter Inhibitors and Heart Failure Outcomes Across Different Patient Populations by Javid Butler and colleagues from the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson, Mississippi, USA. The authors note that hospitalization for heart failure, or HF, marks a fundamental change in the natural history of the disease and portends a poor prognosis for the patients. Butler et al. assess recent trials and conclude that the success in reducing the risk of an HF event by SGLT2 inhibitors across patient populations to a clinically important and remarkably consistent degree is not only a moment for celebration, but also an opportunity for humility, recognizing the serendipity that these strikingly effective drugs were originally and primarily developed to lower blood glucose. Hyperkalemia is a common complication of type 2 diabetes mellitus, or T2DM, and limits the optimal use of agents that block the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, particularly in patients with chronic kidney disease, or CKD. In patients with CKD, sodium glucose co-transporter 2, or SGLT2 inhibitors, provide cardiorenal protection, but whether they affect the risk of hyperkalemia remains uncertain. In a fast-track clinical research article entitled Effects of Canagliflozin on Serum Potassium in People with Diabetes and Chronic Kidney Disease, the Credence Trial. Brendan Noyan and colleagues from UNSW Sydney in Australia look into this issue further. The Credence Trial randomized 4,401 participants with T2DM and CKD to the SGLT2 inhibitor canagliflozin or matching placebo. In this post-hoc analysis, using an intention-to-treat approach, the authors assessed the effect of canagliflozin on a composite outcome of time to either investigator-reported hyperkalemia or the initiation of potassium binders. They also analyzed effects on central laboratory-determined hyper- and hypokalemia serum potassium greater than or equal to 6.0 and less than 3.5 millimoles per litre, respectively, and change in serum potassium. The incidence of investigator-reported hyperkalemia or initiation of potassium binders was lower with canagliflozin than with placebo, as at ratio or HR 0.78, P equaling 0.014. Canagliflozin similarly reduced the incidence of laboratory-determined hyperkalemia, HR 0.77, P equaling 0.031, with no effect on the risk of hyperkalemia, HR 0.92, P equaling 0.53. Noyan and colleagues conclude that among patients treated with renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system inhibitors, SGLT2 inhibition with canagliflozin may reduce the risk of hyperkalemia in people with T2DM and CKD without increasing the risk of hypokalemia. 
The article is accompanied by a thoughtful editorial by Ileana Pina from the University College of Medicine in Midlands, Michigan, USA. Pina notes that the overall results reported are impressive, in that canagliflozin reduced the risk of investigator-reported hyperkalemia or the initiation of potassium binders compared with placebo, and extend the findings of other SGLT2I studies in patients without CKD at entry. In addition, Noyen and colleagues have constructed a U-shaped curve for kidney and cardiovascular outcomes that mirror those of registries and clinical trials, supporting the maintenance of potassium within normal limits and avoiding both extremes. Finally, the implications of this study for clinicians caring for patients with diabetes mellitus and CKD should enhance confidence in the use of SGLT2Is not just to prevent hyperkalemia, but also to allow the maintenance of renally protective drugs, now with a new one on the shelf. Iron deficiency is common in HF with reduced ejection fraction, or HEFREF, and negatively affects cardiac function and structure. In another fast-track clinical research article entitled The Effects of Intravenous Ferric Carboxymaltose on Cardiac Reverse Remodeling Following Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy, the IRON-CRT trial. Peter Martens and colleagues from the Ziekenhaus Aus Limburg Hospital in Genk, Belgium, study the effect of ferric carboxymaltose, or FCM, on cardiac reverse remodeling and contractile status in HEFREF. Symptomatic HEFREF patients with iron deficiency and a persistently reduced left ventricular ejection fraction, or LVEF, less than 45%, at at least six months after cardiac resynchronization therapy, or CRT implant, were prospectively randomized to FCM or standard of care in a double-blind manner. The primary endpoint was the change in LVEF from baseline to three-month follow-up, assessed by three-dimensional echocardiography. Secondary endpoints included the change in left ventricular end-systolic, or LVE-SV, and end-diastolic volume, or LVE-DV, from baseline to three-month follow-up. Cardiac performance was evaluated by the force-frequency relationship as assessed by the slope change of the cardiac contractile index, or CCI, equaling systolic blood pressure stroke LVE-SV index, at 70, 90, and 110 beats of biventricular pacing. A total of 75 patients were randomized to FCM N equaling 37, or standard of care, N equaling 38. After three months, the change in LVEF was significantly higher in the FCM group, 4.22%, than in the standard of care group, minus 0.23, P equaling less than 0.001. Similarly, LVESV, minus 9.72 milliliters versus minus 1.83 milliliters, P equaling 0.001, but not LVE-DV, P equaling 0.748, improved in the FCM group versus the standard of care group. In addition, FCM resulted in an improvement in the CCI slope during incremental biventricular pacing, with a positive force frequency relationship at three months. Finally, functional status and exercise capacity, as measured by the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, and peak oxygen consumption were improved by FCM.
Martens et al. conclude that treatment with FCM in HEFREF patients with iron deficiency and persistently reduced LVEF after CRT results in an improvement of cardiac function measured by LVEF, LVESV, and cardiac force frequency relationship. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Eva Jankowska and Piotr Ponikowski from the Wroclaw Medical Institute and University Hospital in Wroclaw in Poland. The authors conclude that we are currently witnessing a growing interest in iron deficiency as a therapeutic target in the cardiology world, with the emphasis on HF. Taking into consideration the critical role of iron in cellular metabolism, in particular in cellular energy metabolism, and close links with inflammatory pathways, one may expect the contribution of abnormal iron status also to other cardiovascular diseases and conditions. In a third fast-track clinical research article entitled Prognostic Value of Comprehensive Intracoronary Physiology Assessment Early After Heart Transplantation, Chong Min An from the University of Ulsan College of Medicine in Seoul, Korea and colleagues evaluated the long-term prognostic value of invasively assessing coronary physiology after heart transplantation in a large multi-center registry. Comprehensive intracoronary physiology assessment measuring fractional flow reserve or FFR, the index of microcirculatory resistance or IMR and coronary flow reserve or CFR was performed in 254 patients at baseline, a median of 7.2 weeks, and in 240 patients at one year after transplantation, 199 patients at both baseline and one-year measurement. Patients were classified into those with normal physiology, reduced FFR, FFR being less than or equal to 0.80, and microvascular dysfunction, either IMR greater than or equal to 25, or CFR less than or equal to 2.0, with FFR greater than 0.80. The primary outcome was the composite of death or retransplantation at 10 years. At baseline, 5.5% had reduced FFR, 37% had microvascular dysfunction. Baseline reduced FFR, adjusted hazard ratio or AHR, 2.33, P equaling 0.088, and microvascular dysfunction, AHR 0.88, P equaling 0.73, were not predictors of death and retransplantation at 10 years. At one year, 5% had reduced FFR, and 24% had microvascular dysfunction. One year reduced FFR, AHR 2.98, P equaling 0.028, and microvascular dysfunction, AHR 2.33, P equaling 0.015, were associated with significantly increased risk of death or retransplantation at 10 years. Invasive measures of coronary physiology improved the prognostic performance of clinical variables. Chi-squared improvement, 7.41, P equaling 0.006. The authors conclude that abnormal coronary physiology one year after heart transplantation was common and was a significant predictor of death or retransplantation at 10 years. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Fernando Alfonso and colleagues from the Universidad Autónoma de Madrid. 
The authors conclude that this is the largest study assessing the prognostic value of invasive physiological assessment in heart transplantation recipients. Characterization of the physiological phenotype in these patients provides unique prognostic insights and may pave the way for additional mechanistic and clinical studies in heart transplantation. Despite the pathophysiological appeal of intracoronary imaging and physiological assessment, these techniques, like EMB, remain invasive strategies. It's tempting to envisage that one day, non-invasive assessment of coronary anatomy and physiology might replace their invasive counterparts to inform clinical decisions in these challenging patients. Since 1968, heart transplantation has become the definitive treatment for patients with end-stage heart failure. In a clinical research article entitled The Stanford Experience of Heart Transplantation Over Five Decades, Yuanji Zhu from the Stanford University School of Medicine in California, USA and colleagues aim to summarize their experience in heart transplantation at Stanford University since the first transplantation was performed over 50 years ago. From the 6th of January 1968 to the 30th of November 2020, 2,671 patients were presented to Stanford University for heart transplantation, of which 1,958 were adult heart transplantations. Stabilized inverse probability weighting was applied to compare patients in the period 1996 to 2006, n equaling 356, versus 2007 to 2019, n equaling 515. Follow-up data were updated through 2020. The primary endpoint was all-cause mortality. After the application of stabilized inverse probability weighting, the distance organs traveled increased from 84 miles to 159 miles from the period 1996 to 2006 to 2007 to 2019. Total allograph ischemia time also increased over time, 200 versus 225 minutes. Patients in the period 2007 to 2019 showed superior survival and those in the period 1996 to 2006 with a median survival of 12.1 versus 11.1 years. The authors conclude that in this half-century retrospective descriptive study from one of the largest heart transplant programs in the USA, long-term survival after heart transplantation has improved over time, despite increased recipient and donor age, worsening comorbidities, increased technical complexity, and prolonged total allograft ischemia time. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Donna Mancini from the ICANN School of Medicine in Mount Sinai, New York, USA, and colleagues. The authors conclude by pointing out that the field of cardiac transplantation continues to evolve, including more complex recipients and donors, yet advances in medical and surgical management have so far outstripped the challenges with sustained improved survival. Focused, detailed statistical analysis of outcomes like the Stanford Report are needed to monitor when and if these challenges outbalance the risks. Recent clinical trials indicate that sodium glucose co-transporter 2 or SGLT2 inhibitors improve cardiovascular outcomes in heart failure patients, but the underlying mechanisms remain unknown. 
in a translational research article entitled Effects of Canagliflozin on Human Myocardial Redox Signaling Clinical Implications. Idekazu Kondu from the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom and colleagues explored the direct effects of canagliflozin, an SGLT2 inhibitor with mild SGLT1 inhibitory effects, on myocardial redox signaling in humans. Study 1 included 364 patients undergoing cardiac surgery. Right atrial appendage biopsies were harvested to quantify superoxide sources and the expression of inflammation, fibrosis and myocardial stretch genes. In study 2, atrial tissue from 51 patients was used ex vivo to study the direct effects of canagliflozin on NADPH oxidase activity and nitric oxide synthase, or NOS, uncoupling. Differentiated H9C2 and primary human cardiomyocytes, or HCM, were used to further characterize the underlying mechanisms, study 3. SGLT1 was abundantly expressed in human atrial tissue and HCM, contrary to SGLT2. Myocardial SGLT1 expression was positively associated with superoxide production and profibrotic pro-inflammatory and wall stretch gene expression. Anagliflozin reduced NADPH oxidase activity via AMP kinase or AMPK stroke RAC1 signaling and improved NOS coupling via increased tetrahydrobiopterin bioavailability ex vivo and in vitro. These were attenuated by knocking down SGLT1 in HCM. Canagliflozin had striking ex vivo transcriptomic effect on myocardial redox signaling, suppressing apoptotic and inflammatory pathways in HCM. The authors conclude that these findings reveal a novel mechanism contributing to the beneficial cardiac effects of canagliflozin. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Gabriela Schiattarella and David Bode from the Charité Universitätsmedizin, Berlin, Germany. Schiattarella and Bode conclude that Kondo et al. provide evidence in support of canagliflozin improving NOS coupling and NADPH oxidase activity through SGLT1-AMPK-RAC1-GTP signaling in the heart. The authors should be congratulated for their work which suggests a novel role for SGLT1i in regulating myocardial redox signaling and puts SGLT1 in the spotlight of SGLT's research. The risk and incidence of cardiovascular, or CV, immune-related adverse events, or IRAEs, associated with immune checkpoint inhibitors, or ICIs, is a matter of growing interest. In a meta-analysis entitled Cardiovascular Immunotoxicities Associated with Immune Checkpoint Inhibitors, a Safety Meta-Analysis. Charles Dolledy from the Normandy University in Caen, France and colleagues systematically reviewed all randomized clinical trials, or RCTs, including at least one ICI-containing arm and available CV adverse event, or CVAE, data in cancer patients in the clinicaltrials.gov registry, MediLine, and the Cochrane Central Registry of Control Trials up to the 31st of August 2020. 
CRD 420-201-65672. The primary outcome was the summary risk of 16 different CVAEs associated with ICI exposure versus controls, placebo and non-placebo, in RCTs. ICI use was associated with an increased risk of six CVIRAEs, including myocarditis, pericardial diseases, heart failure, dyslipidemia, myocardial infarction, and cerebral arterial ischemia, with higher risk for myocarditis. Odds ratio, or OR, 4.42, P being less than 0.01, and dyslipidemia, odds ratio 3.68, P being less than 0.01. The incidence of these CVAEs ranged from 3.2 to 19 per 1,000 patients in studies with a median follow-up range from 3.2 to 33 months. The authors conclude that in RCTs, ICI use is associated with six CVIRAEs not confined to myocarditis and pericarditis. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Thomas Nealon from the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, USA, and Lavanya Kondapali from the University of Colorado in Aurora, Colorado, USA. The two conclude that the study of Doledil et al. elegantly approaches the difficult question of determining the incidence of cardiac IRAEs on oncology trials. In addition to the well-known IRAEs myocarditis and pericarditis, they report that ICIs increase the risk of heart failure, dyslipidemia, myocardial infarction, and cerebral arterial ischemia. Specifically, the finding that ICIs potentiate atherosclerosis is an important one and an opportunity for cardiologists and oncologists to expand collaboration with the combined goal of mitigating cardiotoxicity. Additionally, these therapies also provide, in an accelerated fashion, a remarkable insight into the key role of the immune system in cardiovascular biology. The issue is also complemented by two discussion forum contributions in a commentary entitled Percutaneous Intervention in Patients with Cancer Can We Offer an Improvement in Safety? In Hijo Lozano and colleagues from the Hospital Capuénez in Gijón, Spain comment on the recent publication Percutaneous coronary intervention in patients with cancer and readmissions within 90 days for acute myocardial infarction and bleeding in the USA by Mamas Andreas Mamas from Keele University in the United Kingdom. Mamas Mamas responds in a separate comment. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its listeners.